Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Justin Ruderman. And I'm Garrett Post. And today we have a very wide-ranging episode for you, but we will begin with the finalissima between Argentina and Italy at Wembley Stadium. Uh, It was a domination, wasn't it, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, this was an exhibition of football from Argentina. And this is an Italy team who, although, you know, they failed pretty massively in World Cup qualifiers and somehow did not get into the World Cup later this year. But we know this is a good team. They literally won the Euros. That's why they were in this game. It was the winner of the Euros versus the winner of Copa America, obviously. But Argentina, just unbelievable performance from them. They end up running away with it. 3-0 winners. Goals from Lautaro Martinez, Angel Di Maria, and Paulo Dybala. Um, But, I mean, they were just toying with Italy, especially in the second half. Di Maria balancing the ball on his head. Messi dribbling through six defenders and passing it to Martinez for tap-ins and whatnot. I mean, Argentina have looked spectacular in this international window. Um, And honestly, my kind of expectations or hopes for them in the World Cup have really been boosted by these performances. And obviously, Estonia, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is not quite the same as Italy. But this is an Italy team with quality players up and down the pitch, and they made them look silly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good point you bring up because I think the mentality of Argentina is so, so strong right now. Uh, Emmy Martinez said it after the game, I believe. He said, we fight like lions, every single one of us, for Lionel Messi. We know he is the best player ever, and we will do anything in our power uh, to to win him a game. And that's why Argentina still haven't lost with Emmy Martinez in goal. Emmy Martinez in goal, excuse me. So I... I I just love uh, that mentality. And even when, you know, Messi isn't getting on the score sheet, he's still running the game. Uh, Obviously he then scored five goals uh, against Estonia in a friendly, uh, which was incredible. I mean, it it just brought up again, of course, the Messi versus Ronaldo talk uh, with Ronaldo getting two goals uh, in a friendly and then being the first to reach um, 100 international goals, which is very, very impressive. Obviously, he's the first player ever to do so in the history of football. But it's it's different when you look at the the opponents that Messi faces in Comabol versus the ones that Ronaldo is facing in UEFA. I mean, the the top 10 countries he scores against: Luxembourg, Lithuania, Sweden, Andorra, Hungary, Latvia, Armenia, Switzerland, Faroe Islands are those really quality opponents i mean maybe two or three at best so it's just he's he's stat padding a a lot of these in my opinion but uh still very very impressive for him the one thing i will say in ronaldo's favor as far as this this debate because it's now you know two international trophies for the both of them but why are we considering the finalissima a major international trophy it's not the, the Nations League is a bigger trophy than that. At least it's a tournament. This is a one-off game that you get into by, you know, winning uh, another tournament, which the Copa America, obviously, major trophy, huge win. But th- this is, is nothing. It's like uh, the UEFA Super Cup or the Club World Cup. Is it really a major trophy? No. Does it matter? Yes. But major international trophy? Not for me. To be fair, though, Argentina don't have a nation's league. Like there's, they can only win what's in front of them. And you're right. This does seem somewhat comparable to like the community shield or the super cup or something like that. But those trophies do exist and they count as trophies. And, you know, clubs literally have the club world cup badge in the middle of their shirt, Chelsea at the moment, for example. So you're right. It shouldn't be given the same weight as the nation's league. That is an actual tournament, but Argentina can't win that because they don't have one. So they play who's in front of them, which is the team that won the euros in spectacular fashion, obviously in penalties on the final, but they, they pretty much walked over everybody that they played and Argentina made them look like idiots. So As much as you're right, this trophy shouldn't be held in the same regard as the Nations League. It's still another 
trophy that Leo Messi lifted with Argentina and you see all the Argentinian players want to take pictures with him and they're hoisting him, even though, you know, he, he didn't score in this game. He had two assists, the second of which was quite fortunate to go down as an assist. But I mean, he ran the show, obviously. But the fact of the matter is that Leo Messi getting his hands on silverware with, silverware with Argentina will never not be special. No, I agree with that. I just think that when we're saying, you know, Messi and Ronaldo now both have two, Ronaldo's two are superior. And that's coming from a Messi fan, obviously. I just, yeah, I just don't think it's quite as valuable. Um, but uh, Messi in an Argentina shirt is ridiculous. And it's, as you say, uh, he, he, the World Cup ambitions just keep getting higher and higher uh, and more realistic as we continue to get closer because the form that Argentina is in is just frightening. And then here's a stat, Justin, after that win, if we are counting it as a trophy, which uh, everybody is statistically, since Messi's debut in 2004, he has won 40 trophies. That is more than Bayern more than PSG, more than Real Madrid, more than Barcelona, more than Chelsea. It's becoming staggering that he is just, he's winning so many trophies that if he was a club, he'd be top of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is top of the world. He's bigger than any club in the world. He is Lionel Messi. He is, I mean, there's just no words that you can give this man anymore that hasn't already been said by somebody somewhere because he is the greatest footballer to ever touch this planet. And we just need to appreciate him while he's still playing. And that's what, you know, we're going to try and do. This will be his last world cup. We need to enjoy it. That's why, you know, if Argentina wins, it will be a celebration, not only in Argentina, but around the football world. Yeah. And honestly, do I think Argentina are favorites? No, obviously not. It would still, you know, be quite a Cinderella story if they managed to win it. But what I will say is that I think they're a lot more likely to win it than Portugal are based on how these two teams are playing at the moment. Absolutely. I, I don't think that's a debate. I mean, Portugal are barely getting into the World Cup, aren't they? And they're, I mean, I would argue that, you know, Argentina have a harder route uh, in Comabol than Portugal in UEFA. So, yeah, definitely. And then, Justin, the biggest game of the international window, of course, was the World Cup qualifying playoff final between Ukraine and Wales, Ukraine had beaten Scotland pretty handily to get to this game. They traveled to Cardiff to take on Gareth Bale and that Welsh squad looking to qualify for the World Cup for the first time in, I think, over 60 years. Um, and they would get the job done. Gareth Bale whipping in a free kick, which came off Andre Yarmolenko into the back of the net. And that would be enough despite constant Ukrainian pressure across the whole second half, pretty much. Um, and that obviously is big news for us because that means we know who the final member of the World Cup Group B will be and who the United States' first opponent is. But this game, I mean, wow, it was really harsh on Ukraine. They probably deserve to win. But uh, just that heartbreak at the end was tough to watch. Yeah, I don't think Wales deserve to win at all. Um <laughs> I mean, Ukraine dominated this game from, from start to finish, uh, nearly 70% possession. The, the shots, the, every stat goes towards them. The XG heavily in their favor, over 2 to 0.68. Uh, complete domination from Ukraine, which is what I expected, which is why, as a USMNT fan, I'm rooting for Wales. Look, is it extremely hard to root against Ukraine right now? Very much so, especially as a Man City fan with Zinchenko. I... I, everyone wants Ukraine in the World Cup, but with it determining the spot uh, in Group B, as you say, that the U.S. faces, no, I don't want Ukraine in, the, in our group with us because I don't want to play them on the first day of the World Cup and have the entire stadium against us rooting for Ukraine. That's not helpful for the U.S. men's national team in the World Cup. It will be much better to play Wales. Uh, and I also think Ukraine are just a better team as they showed. Wales were lucky to get that win, in my opinion, off of as you say, a deflection, but I mean, the FIFA rankings have Wales at 18 and Ukraine at 27. I mean, it just shows that it's not really accurate world rankings because Ukraine are clearly the better team to me. Uh, it's, it's very beneficial to me that Wales are in the world cup and will be uh, the United States first opponents. So mark your calendars, November 21st at 11 a.m. 
that is Pacific time. So 2 p.m. Eastern time will be the first game for the United States in the 2022 World Cup against Wales. We'll then play uh, England on November 25th, same time, and then Iran on the 29th, same time. Uh, very beneficial to me that we're not playing England first. Obviously, I'd rather play them last, but much more important that they're not first. Uh, Wales will be a good first opponent. And to me, I don't understand this idea of we can't beat Wales. Uh, we can definitely beat Wales. We should beat Wales. Um, we should be getting out of this group is my uh, idea looking at this because yeah, England probably win the group uh, even though, you know, all the talk Our U19s by the way, actually beat England today uh, right before we record this on Monday. So uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that we should be getting out of this group uh, because we're better than both Wales and Iran, in my opinion. In fact, Garrett, Wales is one of the two UEFA opponents, the other being Estonia, who Lionel Messi scored five against, by the way, that the USMNT have faced more than once without ever conceding a goal. So we have never conceded a goal to Wales, and hopefully that does not start in the World Cup. No, I agree. There is no excuse to not get out of the group. But, you know, I think we'd be lying if we said that Gareth Bale in a Wales shirt is not terrifying because he is. He always shows up for them. Um, you know, obviously the goal doesn't go down as his in this game, but it was his dangerous delivery in the semifinal uh, that they had to win to get to this game. He scored two absolute screamers. So, I mean, I agree that Ukraine are probably a better team overall, but Wales have the X factor, which is Gareth Bale. Um, and the problem is that he can come up with anything at any moment. And we've seen that in the biggest games in his career, you know, literally scored the greatest goal in the history of the Champions League final just a few years ago. So as much as I agree, it's probably better for us that Wales are in this group instead of Ukraine. Gareth Bale is absolutely terrifying and something that the U.S. are really going to have to game plan for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's no doubt uh, about that. Uh, whichever wing, you know, Gareth Bale decides to play on, we're going to, our fullbacks are going to have a, a lot of, work to do but I think that also you know the biggest game as you say of his career I think he's he has his eyes on that England game just as the U.S. does um but obviously every World Cup game is as big as it gets so I agree with you but I also think Yaremchuk, Yarmolenko, Zinchenko I think these guys are uh very very high quality players and I think that they can come up with the moments as well and I just think yeah Ukraine are, are as a team much superior in my opinion so very happy that Wales were able to full, pull off this, in my opinion, a shite house. Yeah, it's just that you you say Ukraine had the players come with the moment, but they didn't. And they had their opportunities and they didn't take mm. any of them. And, and Wales did. And that's how they got to the World Cup for the first time since I think it's like 1951, 1952 or something crazy like that. It's been a really, really long time. Um and so, you know, Bale, that's the X factor. But I agree, there's no excuse to not beat them. We are a better team than them. We should be coming second in this group, at least. You know, obviously, you could you could look at England, and they have been struggling a little bit this window, but I don't see them not winning the group. So, yeah, the goal definitely needs to be beat Wales, beat Iran, secure our safety into the round of 16. And with Wales clinching their spot in group B that leaves just two spots left in the 2022 World Cup, a few countries still in the running. Uh, the first path, which will lead to a spot in group D, uh, Peru from Commonwealth will play the winner of the UAE versus Australia. So out of that AFC, it will be Commonwealth for a versus AFC. Uh, of course, the Australian, you know, uh, Asian, basically Australia is in it, whatever. Um, and then path two is CONCACAF versus OFC, which will be Costa Rica versus New Zealand. And that will give the spot in group E. So the winner of that game will uh, advance to the World Cup in group E. So one of Peru, UAE, or Australia, and one of Costa Rica or New Zealand. And Justin, with that, we can move to the games that we played in this international window. First off, a friendly against Morocco, and it was a fantastic performance from the boys in the red, white, and blue. Yeah, absolutely right. We're uh, preparing for those World Cup games against two World Cup opponents in these friendlies before the Nations League, uh, which will come next week. But 
really quality performance from uh, the United States in this game. Uh, obviously, no Hakim Ziyech for uh, Morocco, but they did have Hakimi, who, in my opinion, was not very good. I mean, he got uh, really toasted by Christian Pulisic on that side. So, uh, who had a great game, by the way, Christian Pulisic, the, the assist to Brendan Aronson, a oh. uh, ball over the top. He just brings it out, peach of a touch, and then lays it off to Brendan. Uh, didn't even have to do anything, just pass it into the net. Um, Timo Weah, absolutely incredible goal as well. And then uh, Pulisic giving the penalty that he earned to Haji Wright to get his first U.S. goal. Uh, they were uh, roommates, you know, in the past in youth teams. And so... Pulisic knew exactly what it meant to Haji and gave it to him and Haji able to bury it. Um, even though the keeper dove the right way, I, I was a little bit scared for a second, but very good performance in my opinion, in this game against a world cup opponent, exactly what we need to see. And Justin, if you remember way back when, when we had Abi, AKA USMNT Don on the podcast, we were discussing who the captain of the USMNT should be. And that move from Pulisic to win that penalty. And instead of getting it for himself, you know, he didn't score in this game. He gave it to Haji Wright on his debut off the bench to score. That is incredible leadership, in my opinion, and is exactly why Christian Pulisic is the leader of this team and should be the captain at the World Cup. I couldn't agree with you more, but he got a lot of talk and controversy after the game. Uh, with his comments because he was interviewed and you know it was a large uh, Moroccan fan base and it was you know 50-50 at best for the United States but probably more Moroccan fans there uh, very loud and Pulisic was asked about it after the game he said to be honest for whatever reason I'm not super happy with the amount of Americans here however that works out if I'm being completely honest but thanks to the ones who did come and the support is always great for them but yeah it's nice to be back in America and playing again so Look, this you can take these comments however you want to take them. Everyone took them a different way. Um, my opinion is that, look, I don't understand everyone harping on the word Americans. Yes, we understand there are American Morocco fans, but he's talking about the, the people in the stadium rooting for the United States in the game. Obviously, I think I don't think that that's, you know, really confusing. Um, but more importantly, he's not criticizing the U.S. men's national team fans in this statement. That's the key part. I think that a lot of people took it as a criticism of the U.S. fan base. It's not that at all. He's taking a subtle shot at the U.S. Federation. He's saying, when he says, however that works out, he's saying, these tickets are way too expensive to the U.S. Federation. You need to lower these prices so that we can actually fill up stadiums and we can, you know, have full stadiums of 50,000, 60,000, rather than not filling up 30,000 seat stadiums. Yeah, and I mean, they also chose to play the game in Cincinnati on a Wednesday night and the ticket and the tickets are sky high for that on a cold Wednesday night. No shot. So, yeah, I I agree. I I don't think, you know, as you said, he was appreciative to the fans who did come, who did, you know, spend their hard earned money to go watch a friendly on a Wednesday night in the cold. So that's all well and good. But you're right. And, And this is a problem that we've seen is the U.S. thinks, oh, we can just put games in the North, put games at freezing temperatures. And that will assure that we have home field advantage and heads up USSF that doesn't work. Yeah, it's exactly right. Can we stop with this idea of we need to play all these games in small cities so that uh, we have us fans there. They're afraid of the big cities. We don't play games on either coast. We don't play games in, in cities with over a million. I believe something like two of the past 10 games or something have been in cities with uh or, or on either coast, and then we none of them have been with popula- cities with populations over a million. Um, it's ridiculous. The I just don't understand it. They're, the fans on the West Coast, me and you, want to see our team. Bring them to the coast. We will fill up stadiums. Sure, there will be uh, fans of other teams as well because it's very diverse in, in larger cities. We understand that. But you can't hide away from that. You're not going to grow the game in this country if you're hiding away from the biggest cities in the country. Yeah, and it's not like what they're doing now is working. So what do they have to lose? I, I, I totally agree. And yeah, you know, the U.S. is a country that is very diverse and has a lot more immigrants from other countries than elsewhere in the world. And, you know, that's just something we're going to have to deal with. But 
completely neglecting entire portions of the country, dedicated fans, because you want to go hide in the cold in Ohio every game. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. And then, of course, just a side note in that game, Christian Pulisic uh, passed Landon Donovan to become the fastest player in in U.S. history to 20 goals and 10 assists. Uh, He did that in 49 appearances. He also... Uh, the stat then in the next game against Uruguay, which we will get to right now, finished nil-nil. Obviously, he didn't uh, get a, a goal contribution there, but also uh, the most goal contributions through 50 games, Uruguay being that 50th game uh, in a U.S. shirt for him. So, uh, but what were your thoughts on the Uruguay game, Garrett? Because, you know, this is a, a very quality side, uh, ranked really high up there in the FIFA rankings, of course. And they hadn't lost a game in, or they had they had won every single game, excuse me, in 2022 until this game. Yeah, I mean, they're 5-0 and under their new manager um, and, and a very good team. And although they did start a lot of players that you wouldn't usually expect to be starting for them, you know, this game really was back and forth. And, and I'm honestly shocked it ended nil-nil because both teams had really good opportunities. Uruguay came out of the gates just racing uh, in the first 10, 15 minutes, creating some really good chances and definitely should have scored. Sean Johnson had to make one good save, but they were kind of just blowing these opportunities. But then the U.S. got back into it, had some chances of our own. Tim Weah had a good chance. Jesus Ferreira had a good chance. And then the second half was really just back and forth. And so this was one of the most open nil-nils I've ever seen. Um, But overall, you know, there were definitely some positives to be taken from the performance, some negatives. Uruguay probably should have scored at the end of the game with um, Darwin Nunez somehow deciding to pass to Cavani, gets deflected, Cavani puts it wide, and, you know, that probably should have been the winner for them. But you're right, it's a quality opposition. They brought on a lot of players at the end who are of, of very high quality, and we still managed to keep them out, and, and we could have won the game. Either team could have won the game. So overall, decent dress rehearsal and the fact that we're on a similar level and, you know, could have snatched something from this game against a very high quality opponent. I, I can't really complain. Yeah, I, I understand that to me. I, I can't complain about the results, but also, you know, we're at home. Uh, it's going to be different than the World Cup. We should have maybe found a, a way through. But to me, the, the biggest thing that came out of this game is just there's so many debates uh, about lineups and what we're going to do for the World Cup. I think that most likely, right, we're going to have uh, Walker Zimmerman and Chris Richards as that center back duo because I don't think that John Brooks is going to be coming, unfortunately. Uh, I hope he does. My my preferred center back partnership would be Brooks and Zimmerman. Um, but then, of course, you know, we have Dest and Robinson out on the wings. And then who do you bring? Do you bring Cannon? Do you bring Yedlin? Do you bring Scally? Do you bring... Uh, there's so many options, right? Uh, and then in the midfield, it's been this MMA for so long. But to me, that's not what we have to do in the World Cup because when Gio Rana comes back, you have to figure out where you're going to put him into this team. And that's the biggest question for me because if you're putting him out on the wing, that means that Timo Weah and Brandon Aronson aren't getting into this team, which is just ridiculous. I think the best way is to have an attacking midfield. You Take Musa out. I know he played very well against Uruguay. I'm a big he was fan great. of him. He was fantastic. But that that MMA midfield is not an attacking midfield. So if you put Gio at the 10, now you have an attacking midfield. You can put Timo Weah or Aronson on the right wing, which, by the way, is a fantastic debate in itself, um, which is, is always great. Uh, and then, obviously, the nine is, is always going to be a debate. But to me, Gio has to be in that midfield uh, not only to make space for somebody on that right wing, but to make an attacking midfield rather than uh, this more static trying to control the midfield. Yeah, I mean, the competition for places is only getting better and better, Justin, obviously with even more players committing their futures to the USMNT like we saw with Malik Tillman. And we had another one which hasn't been made official yet, but reports are saying that 20-year-old Nottingham Forest winger Alex Mighton will be deciding to commit his future to the U.S. He was born here, but has been representing England at youth level and obviously has now been promoted to the Premier League with fellow American Ethan Horvath. But I mean, these players are committing to the U.S. and I don't even see how they get in because of the talent, especially on the wing. And, and, you know, Aronson 
during the games too, Holden was talking about how Aronson told him he sees himself as like a box to box midfielder. So it's so interesting that I kind of see him as a winger. I feel like that's where Leeds and Jesse Marsh probably see him considering he seems to be a replacement for the imminent departure of Rafinha, which obviously hasn't happened yet, but likely will. So, I mean, the competition here is insane, but it's a fantastic problem for Greg Berhalter to have. Yeah. I mean, you're totally right. Look, I, the box-to-box thing, I don't really understand. Maybe an attacking midfielder, yeah, but definitely not a box-to-box midfielder. Does he have the ability to run that much? Absolutely. We know oh, he, runs, yeah. he runs as much as any player in the entire world, basically. Um, but, no, yeah, I, I think he's a winger, and I think that Timo Weah, who I also think would be interesting to maybe see in the, in the middle, he sees himself as a winger, of course. So I don't necessarily think that moving him into the middle would be the best solution, even though it might... Uh, be the best way to fit all of your best players onto the pitch. Uh, because I think, yeah, if you put Aronson uh, with way in the middle and Pulisic, and then you have, you know, Geo in the middle with Weston and Tyler, that might be the best way you can physically fit all of your best players on a pitch. But that doesn't mean that it's the best uh, formation for you to win. And yeah, as you say, Alex Mighton, uh, reported by Brian Skyaretta, so uh, very uh, trustworthy source there. He's going to come. Uh, he's in the process of filing his application to switch to the United States. As you say, from England, we're snatching these uh, recruits and he's been playing with England his entire youth career. And then Greg Berhalter gets the switch as much as we can criticize Greg Berhalter for anything else. We have to give him credit when it comes to recruiting dual Nats because he signs everyone he goes after. Basically it's so, so impressive. And it's why I continue to say, look, fire Greg Berhalter, but keep him in recruiting. I mean, I don't want him as the men's national team head coach, but I do want him in recruiting because we will get all the best dual nationals if he's recruiting for us. It's incredible how good he is. I don't know how he does it, but he must have some kind of charisma or magical touch in these conversations because the report is it took him like one conversation with Alex Mighton to convince him. Yeah, make him like the director of football, if you will. (laughs) Obviously not the same structure as a club, but, you know, recruitment or head of recruitment, something like that. You're right. I definitely don't think his on-field tactics and management is ideal, especially if the U.S. wants to get to the potential that I think we all see it, it could reach. Um, but you're right. His his touch in getting these players in has been fantastic and would be a, a big loss if we were to fire him and, and not move him to another position somewhere else in the Federation hierarchy. But Justin, we have a plenty of transfer rumors Uh, surrounding USMNT players. Obviously, the window uh, is starting in just a few days, but I think the biggest one has to be the Christian Pulisic saga. Obviously, we talked about a few weeks ago what his dad was saying about Chelsea Pulisic removing Chelsea from his Instagram bio and whatnot, and now reports have come out from Christian Falk that Liverpool are interested in signing him as a potential replacement for Sadio Mane if he ends up going to Bayern. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, right. The original reports were Christian Pulisic is staying put, 100% staying put. Because Todd Boley, the new owners, are American. They want to use him uh, in advertising in the U.S., obviously the, the a huge marketing tool. But then we have this bomb from Christian Falk, as you say, saying that Liverpool are interested. Um, to me, this means one thing. Stop the Christian Pulisic hate. It makes absolutely no sense. This guy uh, is now wanted by Liverpool, who we know are incredible recruiters, as good as there is in the world. Whatever they use to pick players, it, they fit well into their system, and they continue to produce, uh, and they buy them for under what they're worth generally, right? So that means to me, number one, that Pulisic is doing well at Chelsea and all the hate that he gets for his performances doesn't make sense. We see that with his per 90 statistics generally very, very high up there. It's also, I don't understand how we're going to call Christian Pulisic overhyped. I, I hear this constantly. I heard it in these, in these friendlies. I heard it when he was linked to Liverpool. It makes no sense to me. All these bigger countries... England, Brazil, Spain, they constantly hype 20 different youngsters. And then maybe half of those make it into the national team and succeed. No, we've been hyping one guy since he was 15 years old. And he has made it to the absolute top level of club football, winning the Champions League, doing everything but winning a league title so far. And he does 
does not deserve any slander or to be called overhyped at all. This guy has had all the pressure of an entire country for his whole career and still doesn't disappoint at any point. No, and he hasn't even been given like a consistent run of games at, at Chelsea and like the his potential he hasn't even reached yet. And despite that, he scored and assisted in a Champions League semifinal. He's breaking all sorts of records for the U.S. And like compare him to let's compare him to an English talent who has been way overhyped. One of his teammates, Callum Hudson-Odoi, who does not touch the field at all. Um, and Pulisic's expectations are even higher. The pressure he feels from the U.S. because he is already the greatest U.S. player of all time. And we rely on him so much to produce and we will especially at the world cup rely on him to produce but he still delivers at a much more consistent rate than so many of these other talents so no i totally agree and the fact that liverpool and jurgen klopp who obviously works with him um so the the fact that they're looking at him um just tells you everything you need to know exactly right um i i think you know it's Still unlikely, I think most likely he stays at Chelsea, but it would be uh, an incredible move and a good one for his career, uh, in my opinion. It, obviously, he would have competition in those spots, but I think that he's a better player than both Diogo Jota and Luis Diaz, and that can be controversial, but I don't care because it's the truth. Um, and he would win trophies at Liverpool that he's uh, not winning necessarily at Chelsea, more, more competing for a league and a consistent competition than winning that one UEFA Champions League, which obviously is still impressive. But um, there are some other rumors as well. It started out uh, this week with Tyler Adams being rumored to Leeds. Obviously, you know, RB Leipzig in the RB system, Jesse Marsh, and then he just got Aronson, another US player. There's so many links there. But then Tyler Adams was asked about it at a press conference and he said, what are you talking about? I haven't heard anything about Leeds. So probably not true then, right? Yeah, but I, I, it's kind of a move I'd like to see happen, especially if Calvin, Phillip, Calvin Phillips leaves, which I think looks likely, especially with your club city definitely sniffing around that situation, looking Absolutely. for a Fernandinho replacement. So I, I think if that happens, Adams to Leeds would make sense. But yeah, apparently right now that's not being discussed. Yeah, I think that it would be good as far as being under Jesse Marsh. But other than that, I don't know if he necessarily fits uh, the lead system particularly well. Uh, he could do it. I don't doubt that he could do it. I just don't know if it's necessarily the best spot for him. But as we said, it was just a very interesting rumor because it seemed credible for a little bit until Adam said, what are you guys talking about? But a little bit more credible of a rumor uh, is who I was talking about earlier. We we missed very much so during these uh friendlies because we had you know Aaron Long playing Ugh. at center back discuss yeah if, if he gets brought to the world cup by the way good lord he, he he probably will be he probably will be our our last center back that gets brought but he does not deserve to be on a world cup roster um Miles Robinson injury the only reason he's you know in in the conversation of course but Chris Richards who I believe will be starting in the world cup next to Walker Zimmerman uh has Rumors to Crystal Palace, Patrick Vieira supposedly wants him. Uh, obviously, he's at Bayern right now getting loaned out to Hoffenheim and things. He's not getting uh, the playing time at the top club that he needs. So what do you think of this move to Palace? I think it could be a really good move. I mean, I think in terms of Palace, the defenders they signed last season uh, in, in the summer window, obviously Mark Gahey from Chelsea, who I think has been a fantastic signing for them, um, you know, really, really good season. But Joachim Anderson, I think, has been a little bit of a disappointment. So could his spot be there for the taking for Chris Richards if he moves to Palace? I could see that. I think Gahey and Chris Richards, although a very young and quite inexperienced center back partnership, I mean, that's a, a lot of talent that you're looking at in, in a back two right there. Yep, absolutely right. I think that uh, it could be a good move for him. Look, uh, if he can get playing time at Bayern, that would be incredible, but I don't think it's necessarily going to happen. So getting into a very physical league like the Premier League, uh, obviously the top league in the world, without a doubt, uh, it would be a good progression for him. And he would have a Palace is a mid-table side right now, right? Which is, I think, a good place for a center back because you're not necessarily getting pounded, pounded, pounded every single minute of every game like you would be if you were in a lower side in a relegation battle. Um, and he probably, you know, wouldn't get relegated or anything like that. But also, uh, you are getting a test. You're not at a top club where 
you're not defending as much and you're only defending, you know, on the counter or things like that. Uh, it would, Palace play very even games and he would get uh, the, the practice that he needs. And then, Justin, we can stay in the U.S., but this time turn our attention to club football. Obviously, the international break has meant there have not been many MLS fixtures. I believe only one this weekend. But Mm -hmm. the biggest news coming out of MLS came out of Charlotte with them officially releasing their manager, Miguel Angel Ramirez, um, due to some pretty shady reasoning, it seems. Yeah, well, first of all, I don't understand this part ways thing in MLS. It makes no sense. They they sacked him. Can we just say it in the, in the United States? I don't know why everything has to be a parting ways within the MLS. But anyway, uh, yeah, Christian uh, Lotizino getting the interim job. But it's just insane in Charlotte right now because in the past you know year or whatever, six months even, technical director Mark Nichols leaves for Columbus in January. Then their president, Nick Kelly, moved to the CEO uh, of Tepper Sports, uh, of course, their owner being um, Tepper himself, so so just within the, the company, essentially. But then he stepped down himself in May, and now they've fired Miguel Ramirez after 14 games. And as you say, Garrett, shady reasoning, because it's been reported that uh, a designated player refused to play for the club after the international break if he was still in charge, uh, which you know put some context on the uh statement provided by zoran of charlotte he said we had no choice we had to do it right which makes sense now because if your dp is not planning to play if the the coach is still in charge you don't really have a choice to me it just gives me a little bit of mbappe vibes uh with you know the top player controlling and to me this has to mean one person and that is svidersky it's svidersky who didn't want to play isn't it yeah, and, and he has been their most important player. But, I mean, it's just still, like, that's way too much power. He, he should not have the power to basically say, you have to fire this manager and, and for the club to agree and be like, okay, we have to fire this manager. And it's not like they've been doing bad. Considering it's their first season, eighth in the East, that's pretty solid. 16 points through 14 games for a brand-new club. I mean, we've seen so, so much worse from expansion franchises in, in their first season. So it just doesn't really make sense. Uh, I would love to know what Svidersky hated about him so much, but either way, but like players should not be able to just decide that they don't want to play anymore because of the manager and that the manager needs to be sacked. I just think they've set a dangerous precedent there for MLS turning into something like the NBA with LeBron or James Harden, you know, and Durant being able to just go wherever they want and fire whatever coach they want and this or that. It, it, I don't like it at all. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it just makes me think like we had Miami who we knew were just in shambles from the very start, but Charlotte didn't seem that way, but it's really starting to seem that way now. Obviously, you know, I just said what, what Zoran Kurnetha had said, we had to do it. We didn't have a choice. And then it, it's also been reported and not confirmed, of course, but that, that he um, asked the players not to use their social media after he sacked the coach so that they, they couldn't, you know, talk about whether they were happy or whatever the case may be there. Um, it just is really worrying for the state of Charlotte FC because as you say, they, they haven't been doing poorly. Uh, and I want the, I want new clubs to at least be able to compete. But if you're just a club in complete shambles, it's not going to start well for you. And then, Justin, the one game we did have in MLS this weekend was the Vancouver Whitecaps hosting RSL, uh, and, and they would end up getting a win in dramatic fashion. It was Ryan Gauld from the penalty spot in stoppage time getting the win for Vancouver, who obviously have been having a torrid season thus far. But the absence of Gold has been a big contributing factor to that. I mean, when he plays, he is one of the best players in this league. And so having him back and you know getting on the score sheet albeit from the penalty spot, is really big for Vancouver and a a big three points maybe to start turning their season around. Absolutely. I mean, you're totally right. When he uh, entered the pitch, it it changed the game for Vancouver. That's when, you know, they took over and Ryan Gold said, okay, I got to put the bit between my teeth and I got to go win this game for Vancouver. Uh, And he was creating and 
you know, obviously he wasn't uh, the one to draw the pens. It was Luis Martins who, by the way, I mean, that is as clear of a penalty as you will ever see. I have no idea what Aaron Herrera was thinking, just sliding in there when, and it was, you know, a clever chip from Luis Martins to just chip him over him and take the penalty. But I don't know what Aaron Herrera was thinking on a yellow card, no less. If you're getting sent off and you're getting a penalty, game's over. Um, but yeah, Ryan Gold buried it. As you say, one of the better players in MLS. He, he shows it uh, when he's on the pitch and a, a big, big win for Vancouver. Um, but also a, a big win for my LAFC because RSL were trying to you know get on our tails, but it just um, makes the gap even a little bit bigger. Still at four points with LAFC at the top of the MLS Western Conference. Now RSL uh, having their playing their 15th game. So LAFC have a game in hand. Uh, on RSL in third and Dallas even uh, on games as well, four points back in second place. And then Garrett moving from the MLS to a couple Premier League news points really quickly is uh, we found out that the Premier League voted to have five substitutions next season, uh, which was very interesting to me. I didn't think that this was going to go through, right? Each team getting one vote. Uh, I thought that it would just be the top six who really wanted it because it benefits, you know, the bigger clubs with deeper squads, but it is important to keep players healthy and give them a rest. So thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, there was talk about this. Obviously it was implemented during project restart um, when the end of the 2019, 20 season was halted due to COVID and they implemented this because the players were kind of out of fitness and, and whatnot, but there was a lot of talk about, you know, does this help the bigger teams more because they have deeper squads? Does this help the smaller teams more because you know, they, they can get more fresh legs on the pitch and whatnot. And I think it probably is the former, not the latter, but at the same time, it, it, you know, my team, especially Everton were absolutely ravaged by injuries. So hopefully having five subs can kind of reduce these fatigue injuries um, and muscle strains and whatnot, because players are, are working too hard, especially with the amount of games that they're playing. So overall, I think it's probably a good decision from the Premier League. Absolutely. And then the transfer windows for the Premier League opens on June 10th, just in a few days, uh, and we'll go all the way until September 1st. But with that, we can talk about some transfers starting in the Premier League. We've been you know, previewing it for weeks to months now, uh, saying that United are going to have a major overhaul. And we saw it uh, just starting now with Pogba, Lingard, Mata, Matic, Bai, Tuanzebi, all leaving, Diego Dalo is the only one who really uh, was questionable and is staying. Erwan Basaka uh, very well may leave. He's waiting on bids. But, I mean, that is a lot of players and ones that need to be replaced, of course. Um, you know, some of them we know where they're going. Uh, Matic is going to go to Roma uh, and, and play with Mourinho, which, you know, we'll discuss in a minute as well. Mata and Lingard, I mean, those are some interesting free agents as well. Paul Pogba uh, has been offered a contract by Juventus, uh, 8 million euros net per season, which, you know, I've been saying for a long time, that is where Paul Pogba needs to go back to, uh, to succeed. Real Madrid were interested. They're completely out of the race now, it seems. So uh, very likely Pogba goes to uh, Juventus. Yeah, we get Pog back 2.0, right? Because we had Pog back <laughs> to United and now it's Pog back yet again. Oh, man, he's just going back and forth, isn't he? Yeah, really. It, it, it's quite funny, but I do agree. I think it's probably the best move for him, although, you know, Juve are not in the best situation as a club, but this is a big get. And if he can play how he played in Serie A before moving to United, they, it's quite some signing for them. In terms of Jesse Lingard, obviously, you know, played at West Ham on loan under David Moyes. It was absolutely spectacular with them, but then United strangely decided to hold on to him this season. I feel like that's such a big mistake because West Ham were ready to shell out, you know, 25 million last summer and now they're losing him for free. So they, they definitely should have sold him when they could. So the rumors are, you know, obviously he could be going back to West Ham, but there are other clubs interested in him. Obviously the way that he played during that loan spell at West Ham would, would attract many suitors. Um, I, I've seen Everton listed, but I, I think West Ham could be a pretty good destination, especially considering that Nikola Vlasic, who they signed kind of as a replacement, just hasn't quite worked out as of yet. Yeah, it would be interesting. Uh, I think Lingard could definitely stay in the Premier League. Mata could, but I think it's less likely he does. 
uh, just because of, you know, he, he's aging a little bit. But speaking of players going back to old clubs, it is Alexander Lacazette returning to Lyon, uh, which is interesting to me. I mean, I feel like, look, Lyon are a very big club and Champions League and all that, but is that really a good move from Arsenal? Obviously, he doesn't want to be at Arsenal anymore, but back to Lyon, I don't know. I mean, I think his race was run at Arsenal. He was a good servant, scored a lot of goals there, but you know, with the, with the youth that they have and the whole rebuild that Arteta is doing, it, w- it was time for him to leave. Um, and, you know, it makes sense. He gets to go home to a club that he loves, his boyhood club, really. So I, I think it makes sense um, personally. And, and now Arsenal obviously will be needing someone to sign uh, to replace him, rather. Um, Eddie and Ketia did sign an extension and, and had a really good back half of the season. But I don't think and I don't think most Arsenal fans would hope to see him leading the line next season. So Justin, who do you think would be the best possible replacement for Lacazette to be taking that number nine spot at Arsenal? It's funny. I was going to pose the same question to you because uh, James McNicholas of the athletic reported that there are six strikers that Arsenal are interested in. They are Gabriel Jesus, Tammy Abraham, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Gianluca Scamaca, Lataro Martinez, and Victor Osimhen. Uh, to me, Gabriel Jesus is the one you go and get. Uh, look, Tommy Abraham would be great. I don't know if he's necessarily going to leave Roma immediately. No. Um, but I, I mean, I said when he left Chelsea, it was a huge mistake and that he would succeed in Roma. All of that has come true, obviously. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a great player. And if you can pry him out of Everton, who really are, you know, are probably going to claw to keep on to him, uh, having stayed in the Premier League, uh, that, that would be a good signing, no doubt. But I just think Gabriel Jesus would fit uh, Arteta better. Arteta already has been taught exactly how to use him by Pep Guardiola. So I don't think he'll have any problem with that. Jesus, uh, you know, wants to leave. City are willing to let him leave. Uh, I think it's it's the best option. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think the pre-existing relationship with Arteta from their time at City together uh, would definitely be a bonus as well. And that's why it makes me think that that's the most likely uh, signing that they make. Um, I think Arteta will know exactly what he can get out of Jesus. Uh, Meanwhile, Calvert-Lewin, as much as I think he provides a lot of things that uh, Gabriel Jesus just objectively does not, it's a little bit less known what you're going to get out of him because of the injuries he had and the inconsistencies that he had this season. And although we know that at his best, he can be, you know, a 16, 17 goal a season striker, um, I think Jesus might be a better bet. And also City are going to be much more willing to sell Jesus than Everton will be with Calvert-Lewin. Absolutely. And then we talked about Leeds earlier in relation to some U.S. men's national team players, um, but they did, are, are, they're about to sign uh, Rasmus Christensen, another player from Salzburg, obviously just got Aronson from Salzburg for about 30. And then they're getting uh, Rasmus Christensen for about 10. So some a little relationship developing there. No surprise uh, with Jesse Marsh grabbing some of his old players. Yeah, and Salzburg have produced a lot of talent and, you know, leads and Jesse Marsh having, you know, managed there, obviously, and knowing what he can get from these players. He did it with Aronson. He's doing it again. And this is some good cover for, you know, either Stuart Dallas or Luke Ayling, who neither of which are getting any younger Uh, And, you know, they had a lot of injury problems last year, Leeds, their squad was nowhere near deep enough. So I think this is a a quality signing just in terms of making sure that they have enough options and so that, you know, injuries don't drag them back into a relegation race again next season. And then uh, Steven Bergvine, we've known he he wants to leave Tottenham Hotspur uh, and Tottenham Hotspur are willing to let him go. Uh, But it's it's the bid that's getting a a little bit. of an argument, right? Because Tottenham want a little bit more. Ajax want to give a little bit less, Um, but Ajax are very much interested. uh, And Bergvine wants to go there. You know, it makes sense to me. Obviously he came from PSV, same uh, league. He was very, very successful there. And he was uh, in the Ajax U system uh, uh, as a kid. So I think it all makes sense to me. I think it'll be a good move for his career. He was always uh, successful uh, in, in that league. And I thought he would be more successful in the Premier League, but it hasn't worked out for him. So uh, go back and, and you know, get some good um, statistics and trophies in the latter end part of your career. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately for him, the the 
peak of his Spurs career was his first 25 minutes on the pitch when he <laughs> came off the bench and scored a belter to beat City. But since then, it's been pretty downhill. And, you know, Spurs just quite simply have better options, especially with Kulusevsky. And, and I'm taking Lucas Mora over Bergvine as well. So, mm. yeah, I think it's time for him to leave. Um, and if Spurs can can get, you know, a decent amount, I don't, I don't think they're going to get everything back that they, they paid for him about two years ago, obviously. Um, but, you know, Spurs taking that money and moving on and maybe signing another center back or whatever else Conte wants to go get. I think definitely a good move for, for all parties involved. And Ajax will be getting a real quality player, especially with, with Anthony, you know, their young Brazilian talent will mm. not be staying there for too much longer. So. Good point. Absolutely. And then we talked about Matic going to Roma. Part of the reason he went there uh, is Mkhitaryan living, leaving for free to enter uh, a big move within Serie A. I think that it's a big loss for Jose Mourinho and, uh, Roma, because I think, you know, Mictarian was incredible in that uh, Europa Conference League final. I think he's one of the main reasons he they won that game. So big loss for, for Mourinho, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a really interesting one from Inter as well, because we know that they signed Chalanolu um, from their cross-stadium rivals, if you will. Uh, but they're, they're also rumored to be going after Dybala right now as a free agent. They're mm -hmm. the front runners to be getting Dybala, according to Fabrizio Romano. So I, I don't really see how they fit all three of those players in a team, but I guess it's, it's the depth and they really want to make a better run in the Champions League next year with, um, you know, and, and obviously want to be reclaiming that league title after losing it to AC Milan. So I, I think both of these, obviously Dybala more so than Mkhitaryan, but Mkhitaryan on a free, that, that's smart business. And if they can get Dybala on a free, that's an unbelievable signing for the Nerasuri. Absolutely. And it's going to make uh, for a very interesting Serie A race next season, in my opinion, because, you know, we talked about Juve going after Pogba. I don't think they're going to stop there. They're not satisfied with fourth place at all. Uh, so that's at least three clubs who are definitely going to be competing big time uh, next season. Um, but which I thought, you know, Roma might do because of Mourinho. Uh, I think he's, as we've discussed, I think he still think he's one of the top managers in the world, which uh, has, you know, basically been proven because PSG want him. Uh, but it's been a whole saga, really, because the report was, okay, PSG want him, Jose Mourinho might go there. And then it was, oh, no, Jose Mourinho is focused on Roma. He's 100% staying in Roma. And then it was, oh, well, he said he was staying in Roma before he heard about the PSG offers. It's just too much confusion. But all I'm going to say is this. I think he's probably going to stay in Roma. But if he goes to PSG, that will be terrible, in my opinion, because as I've just told you, as I said, he's incredible in tournaments. He's five for five in finals. He's he's going to win the Champions League for Paris Saint-Germain, and that gives City no chance at winning it. I think that even with Holland, if uh, PSG get Mourinho, I think they win the Champions League because they have an incredible roster, and Mourinho will actually be know how, actually know how to use it. Uh, so, I just really hope he doesn't go to PSG as a City fan. Uh, but yeah, if he does, it'll be very, very uh, interesting. And I think that he has a chance of winning every trophy there. I mean, I, I don't think he's their best option, though. I, I really don't. I mean, Zinedine Zidane is still sitting on the couch. Man came in the beginning of his managerial career and won three straight Champions Leagues and like obviously inherited a hell of a squad. But I think Zidane at PSG would be a much better fit, especially with you know, the way that Neymar and Messi and them play, like, I don't see how that would fit with Mourinho. That does not make much sense to me. I think Zidane is who they should be going after. And I also think Mourinho should stick with his project. Roma have faith in him. Um, they, they've gotten good investment. Tammy Abraham, as you said, fantastic signing. And, and I don't see Roma sacking him before any finals like Spurs did. I think they <laughs> will have much more faith in him to, you know, really carry out this project. So I really think Mourinho should, should stay in, in Rome, and I think PSG should go after Zidane. That's what's best for all parties, in my opinion. Speaking of Zidane and Real Madrid, uh, they all have agreed personal terms with Arielen Chouameni, uh, if I pronounce that right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, talks are progressing with AS Monaco as far as the fee, but personal terms agreed, in my opinion, there's no way this deal doesn't get done. I mean, Madrid wants somebody, they're going to go get him. Uh, especially when he's at a club like Monaco, no, no offense to uh, a large club, um, but 
yeah, I just think that this is definitely going to get over the line, but a, a big one for Real Madrid. Uh, they've foregone going after Pogba for Chouameni. Yeah, I mean, they're building the midfield of the future. You know, obviously, Cruz and Modric and Casemiro are still world-class, as we saw by the fact they lifted the Champions League trophy just about a week ago. Um, but with Chouameni and Kamavinga, they have two incredibly talented young midfielders to learn from these generational players, and they, they really are building their midfield of the future. So I think this is a, another really good signing from Madrid. Yep, absolutely. And with their midfield of the future coming in, one of their midfielders uh, of the past going out, uh, Isco leaving Madrid, as well as Gareth Bale, of course, uh, two major departures. But the question for me is, where do these two players go? Obviously, still both very, very good players, um, but starting to age. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Isco will most likely stay in Spain with Bale, I mean, a Premier League return would be sensational. Although the thing is that Spurs don't really need him. I mean, he was really good when, when he came back on loan and, and he scored a lot of goals. But with Pulisevsky and now Perisic as well, like I just don't really see where Bale fits into this into that Spurs team. I guess he could be a good rotational option, but I could also see him, you know, going somewhere else. Maybe, and this is probably a little bit too early for him to be doing this, but we could see him go back to the team that he played in their Academy, which would be Southampton. And that would be amazing. And I don't think that's going to happen, but that would be quite the story. Wouldn't it? I don't know. I still feel like Spurs is the most likely. I just don't think he would get that much game time for them. Yeah. I mean, I would love him to go back to Spurs as well. Southampton. I don't see as very likely, um, but I can give you something all something else that to me is very unlikely, but should be, you know, talked about MLS clubs need to be going after these two, uh, whether it be LAFC, whose representatives are already in Europe, you know, finalizing the Chiellini deal, whatever, whoever the big club, Miami, uh, Seattle, LA Galaxy, whoever needs to do it, somebody needs to go after these two, because if you bring Gareth Bale uh, at what, 32 years old to MLS, that would be incredible. And I think that, you know, honestly, I think it's more likely than Southampton, but I think that uh, not, not to say it's likely at all. Uh, Isco has been a dream of mine at LAFC, obviously still only 30. So I think you're absolutely right that he's going to stay uh, in Spain somewhere, but I just, I don't know why he's doing that because it's like, you're just going to be competing uh, in mid table Spain. Is that really what you want to be doing for the rest of your career? Or do you want to be a star uh, in a league that you couldn't, you know, be the face of and actually win some silverware? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying Southampton's likely that's kind of a Cinderella story, um, but it's the only other club in the Prem that he has any connection with, obviously other than Spurs, but you know, I, I still think Spurs might be the most likely option, but you're right. MLS clubs need to be all over that. And, and as I said in a recent episode, that would be one of the greatest signings in the history of MLS because he will absolutely light that league up if, you know, he has any sort of motivation, which I'm not sure he, he might not. But even when he doesn't, you know, he's he still comes up with some fantastic performances. So we'll we have a lot that. of amazing golf courses out here in America. <laughs> that's a fantastic motivation I didn't, I didn't even think about that you're right maybe maybe he'd love vegas if they ever get an mls expansion franchise because they spend 98 percent of their municipal water or whatever on their golf courses out there no problem lafc signs him sends him off on loan to las vegas lights <laughs> Matt, gareth bale playing in the usl championship what a what a, <laughs> what a sight that would be we could go watch him absolutely obliterate the roots Oh, fun stuff. All right. Uh, with that, though, I think that concludes the transfer talk for this week. Uh, it's, it's a lot of it. I think that it will continue to be a lot throughout the summer uh, because, as I said, you know, I think there's just going to be a, a ton of money flying around. It's the first real summer uh, that people have money to spend since COVID. And so I think that just clubs are going to continue to spend big. Uh, but with that, Gary, we can move on to our new-ish segment, our moment of the week. What was yours? Mine was Hyungmin Son scoring a fantastic free kick for South Korea in his 100th appearance for his nation. Um, and just the year that he's had 
this kind of typifies it. He's been doing it for club and now for country. Um, and recently the PFA player of the year nominees came out. And the fact he was not on that list is an absolute disgrace. In my opinion, absolutely a world world-class player. And I don't expect him to be falling off anytime soon. Spurs fans should be really excited. That front three they have is fantastic. So Hyungman's son dispatching that free kick and just continuing his vein of unbelievable form. Yeah, I think we both rate him extremely highly, your player of the season in the Premier League, uh, but him not getting nominated for PFA Player of the Year, not nominated, is an absolute joke. But my moment of the week, Garrett, was Grimsby Town beating Solihull Solihull Moors uh, at the London Stadium to win the National League playoff promotion and get into League Two. Uh, just the, the lower division stuff we've been talking about. It's always fun to watch and getting into league two now, you know, from semi-professional to professional is, is fantastic for them. And then Garrett, our game of the week, which we will focus on next episode. We'll do a detailed analysis of it, but we have chosen the world cup final rematch from the 2018 world cup. Obviously we're about to head into our next one, but it was France against Croatia in the World Cup final in 2018. Uh, This game will be played in the Nations League this time uh, next Monday on uh, at at 11.45 Pacific, 2.45 Eastern American time. Uh, So be sure to watch that game and then tune in for our analysis of it. And with that, Justin, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We actually have a new Twitter handle. So be aware of that is at Upper 90 pod is our new Twitter handle and the Instagram handle has seen the same. That is U90 football pod on there. So be sure to follow us on both of those platforms uh, and we will see you next week.